I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land upon which this recording takes place, the Gubby Gubby people of Southeast Queensland. I honour their continuing connection to land, sea and sky, as well as their elders, past, present and emerging. Hey there, welcome back to the Men, Sex and Pleasure podcast. I'm your host, Cam Fraser. We're talking all things masculinity, sexuality, male bodies and men's experiences of pleasure. This is episode number 170, and on today's episode, I have the pleasure of chatting with a really lovely colleague and friend of mine. Her name is Sarah Martin. Sarah is returning back to the podcast. You might recall her from episode number 135, where we talked about her research, her master's thesis, actually, about pickup artists. We do something a little bit different in this episode. Today, we are talking about our project working on together, known as a sexual attitude reassessment or a SAR. This is for practitioners who work with male clients. And we talk about the three major assumptions that we see practitioners, whether they be sex coaches or therapists or men's work facilitators, the three assumptions that they often make, and Sarah and I make these as well, and we do our best to unpack them on this episode when it comes to working with men. So if you're interested in having some beliefs or stereotypes or values about men challenged, this is the episode for you. We talk about those assumptions and what we can do to overcome them so we can better serve our male clients. And we talk about the SAR that we're offering uh, throughout the year. So yeah, if you want to upskill in the area of your practice with regards to the men that you work with, this is the episode for you. It's really great to chat with Sarah about this. We love nerding out on masculinity and sexuality and those two intersections. So if you're uh, keen to learn more, keep on watching or keep on listening. Super enjoyable. And I hope you enjoy too. This might be a good time to describe what sexual intercourse is so you can understand some of the things we're talking about. At very special times, they like to hold each other close. God made their bodies so they fit together in a wonderful way. At one of those special love times, the sperm from the man's body can go into the woman's body. And in spite of her piety, she sometimes desires the more solid comfort of her husband Pierre's cup. Sarah, you and I can jump in. And uh, firstly, welcome back. Um, I had a, an amazing chat with you on the podcast last time. And so for those that are listening, uh, Sarah, this is the second time that she's been here and uh, you're very welcome to go back and listen to that first episode. It was a great chat about pickup artists. Uh, and Sarah, for those of you that uh, haven't listened to that episode or do not know uh, what an amazing practitioner you are, would you like to introduce yourself again? Yeah, of course. Hi, everybody. My name is Sarah Martin. I'm a certified sex coach and clinical sexologist, and it is such a delight to be back here, Cam. I'm really excited for our conversation today. Yeah, we're going to do something a little bit different today, uh, which uh, I'm eager to do. And the reason why we're doing something a little bit different is because you and I have been working behind the scenes on some pretty cool projects. And I was wondering if you wanted to share a little bit about what you and I have been doing uh, you know, behind all of this uh, Instagram and business stuff where we've got some stuff cooking. So I was wondering if you wanted to share about it. Yeah. Well, it's where to even begin. I think it was last year you'd reached out to me and said, Hey, would you like to talk about pickup artists at my SAR? And I'm like, 
Cam, you've got a SAR. And for anybody listening, it's like, what's a SAR? Uh, SAR stands for Sexual Attitude Reassessment and Restructuring. And it is one of the pivotal trainings in the field of sexology. So Cam and I have both done a number of SARs ourselves, like as practitioners going to other people's SARs. And it's it's not like this academic training where you sit and you like imbibe a lot of knowledge. Instead, it's a sensitivity training. And the whole point is to elicit your deeply held unconscious values, attitudes, and beliefs within a safe container so that instead of getting like surprised by something in the session room with a client, which can be really, really damaging when it's related to sexuality in particular, you work on these biases well ahead of time. It helps you to learn who you can and cannot serve in your work, it helps you identify your boundaries. And that you were developing one that was specifically related to men and masculinity. I was so excited because I've thought for years, there needs to be a Mansar. And then you made it. <laughs> and from there, you know, I've had such enthusiasm for this project and it was, and I think I just decided to be bold and direct because that's what I teach my clients to do. And that's also just kind of how I am. And I said to you like, hey, could I help you develop this? <laughs> And, and he said, yes. So we've been developing um, what we're affectionately calling the Mansar. And we ran the most recent sort of new, improved, extended edition in May. And that was fabulous. You might have seen some Instagram posts around that because we were all super excited. <laughs> yeah, all the participants were sharing happened. about it. It was great. And we're going to be... Uh, releasing our first two-day edition. So the SAR that we ran in May is like a bit hardcore. It was five days. And while that is so powerful and there's so much depth, realistically, a lot of people like two days, like a weekend is a lot easier to manage. So we've got that coming up. And I don't know if I've missed anything in this retelling, but yeah, this is what we've been working on behind the scenes. And it's well, there's that. And then there's also this, like, we're presenting an adapted version of this training to corporations, nonprofits, and governments as well, because honestly, like, the more people who can do this sort of training, I think a lot of common issues will be solved and it will make for a better world. So we're, we're going at this from a couple of different angles to try to get more of this sensitivity training related to men and masculinity out there in the hands of practitioners, but also leaders and change makers in industry and government as well. Yeah. Beautiful uh, retelling. Thank you so much, Sarah, for doing that justice. Uh, and that kind of leads into the intention for today's chat and today's podcast, uh, and, and, and also into the first of the three assumptions that we want to kind of unpack with other practitioners that might be listening to this and even with ourselves, every time I do this, I, I unpack a little bit more about my biases and assumptions yeah. towards men. Uh, and the first, the first assumption, I suppose that, that, uh, you and I kind of really identified, and it's kind of the reason why we did, you know, put the effort in to get this project up and running was this idea that men don't necessarily warrant, uh, you know, specific considerations as men, right? Like that was 
the reason why I put together the, the man SAR to begin with, like the content for it and, and focusing specifically on men and masculinities, because similar to you, I was like, there needs to be a space for us to really talk about masculinity, about men's experiences, about the, you know, specific and unique issues that a lot of men face. And, um, and I wasn't getting that really anywhere else. You know, it's kind of my whole platform is that. And so I was like, all right, I gotta, I gotta yeah. figure out a way to like really bring that together and bring it home into like one, um, comprehensive package. And, um, and so I was wondering, you know, it, what some of your observations have been around that assumption that men don't need consideration in their own specific category as men. Yeah. Well, to, to even kind of zoom out, I remember in 2019, one of the big developments was the American Psychological Association. They put out their very first set of guidelines for working with men and boys, specifically as men and boys. And that was such a powerful statement. And I can uh, make sure we have a link in the show notes to the article that was announcing this in one of the APA journals where they addressed head on this idea of, well, a lot of people would say, well, hey, is this even necessary? Like, haven't men been considered the default throughout the development of the psychological profession? And at the same time, in that article, they point out a number of indicators that would suggest that men aren't all right and being a man has something to do with that. And by that, I mean, like, there are increasing indicators related to men being victims of violent crime, increasing indicators related to uh, men committing violent crime, increasing indicators related to male suicide and the things that the psychological profession looks at to say, okay, well, you know, what are we looking at when we think about the mental health of this population? And for me, I thought it was a bit of a, a groundbreaking moment to have this kind of stodgy, kind of like slow moving professional body come out and say like, hey, when you're working with men, you have to consider how their identity as men is also going to be affecting everything that has to do with their physical health, their mental health, their well-being. How does this fit in? And as a sociologist, this has been one of my frustrations when we talk about gender is saying, well, yeah, so some of this is like individual identity and how we interact with it. But gender is such a social identity, right? It's how others interact with us on the basis of our gender or our perceived gender has such a huge influence on how it is to be a person in the world. And then thinking specifically about my work where historically, and it's still the case, the vast majority of my clients have been men in STEM fields. So I, I work with scientists guys mainly. And, you know, when you're going out there and dating or having sex with people, like that's social, <laughs> like that's, that's, you know, it's no surprise that gender interacts with how it is to be a sexual being with others. And yet most of what I heard, at least in my sexological training, you can tell me about yours, like there seems to be an over-focus on the hydraulics. Like how do we address issues related to erection? How do we address um, early ejaculation or delayed ejaculation? 
And there was also this kind of idea that, oh, like male sexuality, it's so much simpler, you know, like the, I don't know if you ever saw in your textbooks, like the, the whole, uh, oh, what is it called? With the men where it's just like arousal, oh, yeah. ejaculation. The Masters and Johnson's and like 1966 uh, stages or phases of arousal, right? Like very simple and linear. Right. Well, right. But like, and even now, because there's the one that's illustrated more circularly, but then it's like, well, this is female sexuality, which is all circular and complex. And here's the male. It's very simple. And like that never sat right with me. And especially the more into private practice I got, I'm like, okay, yeah, the hydraulics come up sometimes and we need to address that. But that's not the bulk of what my clients are bringing here. And so coming more into that understanding that actually their identity as men plays a tremendous part in all of this interacting uh, was transformative for me. And so like, I think this assumption that we don't have to address men as men, that, you know, that's not necessary in order for practice is one of the first things we have to dispel. And if you're planning to go into men's work, like that's so important to, to address. What do you think, Cam? I've rambled on for a bit here. No, I, I agree with everything you're, you're saying. And I, I often, I often, uh, preach you know, that we've over pathologized like normal variations of male sexual function because we treat men as yeah. robots, as machines, essentially as like, mm. you've got this, even in the language, right? Dysfunction. Um, I often think of like a, a machine malfunctioning, right? And, and we just treat the, right. we treat the, the, like you said, the hydraulic, the function element of it rather than the underlying, you know, sociological or psychological aspects of them as men and their, their like experience of, uh, their gender as a man. And so, um, so I could wax lyrical about like the, the way that we have framed male sexuality for, you know, it's kind of like my whole shtick, right. Is that like the, 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 the <laughs> narrowness, the narrowness around male sexuality is like really, um, yeah, like it's, it's really perpetuated by the media, right. The media that we, that we all consume, like male characters are always kind of not always, but like very often shown as like one dimensional and male sexuality is like very simple and uncomplicated. And if a male character ever does have a sexual difficulty, it's oftentimes the butt of a joke. Um, that's like a big right. punchline. Yeah. Um, and so, so I see a lot of like, a lot of s like specific things that men come to me about is because I talk about those things, right? Like I talk about the, the fact that like male sexuality is much more varied and diverse than what has been portrayed, not only in the media, but also in, um, you know, the academic literature as well. Like that, that Masters and Johnson's male sexual response cycle was uncritically challenged for 60 years, essentially. Right. And we've only just now said, oh, yep. the one that we did for women, the circular one. Yeah. We can also apply that to men. And like, it's not, right. it's not a, that's not necessarily how it works. Right. So, um, so there was this like, oh, I, I guess like all these assumptions made about like men as, like you said, as the default, as like the simple, as like uncomplicated, they're good to go. And now let's, let's critically revise like the, like the, the, the female version of Masters and Johnson's model, for example, uh, was, um, critically revised nine times before they got to the, 
the circular model that they have now. I think Basson, um, Basson and Coates' model. And uh, we never did that for the men's version. We never did that for the male version. Like the feminists had a crack at it, which is amazing. Uh, and then there was like the, the um, new research into like female sexuality. And some amazing research came out of that, but we just didn't do that for male sexuality. We kind of, you know, perpetuated this idea that it didn't need to be done, right? Because guys just right. get their dick hard and then, you know, jerk off or, or penetrate and ejaculate and that's it. Uh, when we know that that is not the case and, um, and that it's much more, uh, not necessarily complicated, but much more varied and diverse than that. Uh, and I often get that on like, in terms of feedback that I get from going onto podcasts, you know, I, I speak a lot about male sexuality. I speak a lot about the, the varied nature of it, the diversity of it, the, um, you know, the, the, the multitude of different expressions of male sexuality. And I'm very often invited on to speak about that for, for like women's podcasts or male, uh, like you know, female sexuality podcasts. And I'm typically the first yeah. male guest that they've had. And that speaks specifically about male sexuality, which is lovely. And I, and I appreciate it. Um, but it like the, the feedback that I often see on like the reviews of that episode or the comments in the you know, Instagram post for that episode is like, why the fuck are we talking about men? Isn't this about, isn't this a female sexuality podcast? Like who, who cares kind of is like the mentality that I see coming through some of these, these comments. Mm. And like, I get that. I get where those are coming from. Um, because like, you know, there is a lot of, a lot more shaming and a lot more you know, taboo maybe around like discussions of female sexuality. And there, there has been some like really specific things around female sexuality, which needs to be addressed. And, um, and so I understand where those, those comments come from, but like it speaks to this idea or this assumption, right. Of like, well, who gives a fuck about male sexuality? Who, who cares about, about men? They don't need to be talked about. They've kind of had their time in the sun when that isn't really necessarily the case, as we kind of pointed out the way that we've been doing that for a long time doesn't serve men at all. Well, and it's also indicative of some unconscious bias inside of the person who's making that comment, right? And it it reminds me of since we've been, um, I, I mentioned at the top, so we have the Mansar, but we've also got uh, an adjusted version, which basically removes um, a, a lot of the explicit material, right? Because then it's- A lot of the sexy um, stuff. A lot of the sexy stuff, we take that out for a version that is for corporations, uh, institutions, organizations, government. Um, and we see it as a complement to their DEI initiatives. And one thing that I've noticed anyway, as we've been presenting this and looking to work and partner with, uh, with companies or governments or organizations, is that oftentimes they have a very robust program related to women in their workforce. And it could be like a special program for elevating women that has special events just for women who are part of this program. And when we go and we talk about like, hey, maybe including something about men and masculinities in your overall DEI initiative will be supportive of everything that you're already doing. To be honest, a lot of time, the first reaction we're getting is a little bit like, really? But why? Like, why would we include this? You know, our workforce is already 65% men. What do we, it's like, well, that right there, you're making your point for yourself. If your workforce is 65% men, 
then these women, when they come out of their like women in leadership or whatever program it is that you have, like are going to be surrounded by primarily like colleagues that identify as men. And if there isn't some work done around the, the biases and the values, attitudes, and beliefs that underpin that from everyone. So like this also applies to men really getting in touch with some of these messages that have been received throughout life. Like we've seen this ourselves in delivering this SAR, how incredibly powerful it is for participants of all genders, right? Because even if like, whether you yourself are a man or you have men that you are connected to know and love, like it will be relevant <laughs> to you what comes up. And so, but like, again, it's just this other instance of like, but why? Like, why would we include something about men in our DEI program? And so, you know, like, and again, I totally understand where that comes from. And like, I understand organizations looking and saying, wow, like, no matter what we do, we seem to like be a workforce that's really overwhelmingly dominated by men. What can we do to, um, to invite more diversity into our organization because there's plenty of research that shows having a more diverse organization like winds up being more profitable and more efficient in the long term, right? And yet like this is one of the missing pieces. It's like there's this gigantic glaring blind spot as to like like why would we even need to acknowledge men as men? and acknowledge what that means in terms of the lives of men. And it's like, well, the longer we remain blind to that, the easier it will be to perpetuate the systems that currently exist and which are kind of like shitty for all of us um, involved in them, speaking of patriarchy in particular here. Yeah, and that um, that response, as you, as you kind of pointed out, like the response from the Instagram comments or the podcast reviews or from um, you know, uh, DI officers uh, who are like, why, what's the point? As you mentioned, like that, that kind of is indicative of some unconscious bias, right? Towards men and about men. And that's the, I guess, like the second assumption that is one of the things we want to unpack on this episode is like, you do, regardless of who you are, have unconscious bias when it comes to men, because we all do, right? Because we've all watched the movies we've all i mean not all but read the research right like and and as i said before like the, they perpetuate really limiting narratives around male sexuality around masculinity around men's experiences uh and so and and, and i just it happens all the time i do workshops all the time and i'll like drop a little nugget of wisdom around um you know erections and how that you know how a lot of guys internalize their ideas of masculinity and manhood because you know, they've, they've equated that to whether their penis is hard or not. And, um, and I always get like guys going, well, even, you know, women or whoever's in the audience just got to go, oh, okay, shit. I didn't kind of realize that, you know? Um, and, and so like unpacking those biases is kind of what the SAR is, is all about. But I'm curious, uh, if you, if you want to speak to any of those biases that I, I suppose, you know, people are, are commonly have. Yeah, well, I think there's a number of common biases when it comes to men broadly and also male sexuality specifically. And I'd like to highlight some of those during our time together today, because if you're listening to this, like, 
And if any one of these like shakes you up a little bit where you go, well, hang on, isn't that, is that not true? Um, that that might be a good indicator that maybe you have some values, attitudes, and beliefs there that are at work under the surface that maybe you haven't had a chance to shake up and become conscious about. So, I mean, one, and we talked about this before recording, because I think it's just such a huge topic, is this belief that male sexuality is inherently dangerous or inherently predatory. And I think that's one of the most damaging um, like unconscious biases that's out there about male sexuality, because like this, I see in like people broadly, I see this um, idea like professed by, you know, women in some circles or even academics sometimes. But like, I also see this idea really get internalized into men themselves. And I don't know about you and your work, Cam, but oftentimes a lot of time is spent in my work with my clients who are men unpacking some of the beliefs that they have about their own sexuality and this fear of being sexual because they believe that that is dangerous and like sit with that for a minute like I just saying it to you like it gave me tingles and I feel like tears pricking at my eyes because that is so awful like and and we talk, we spend a lot of time talking about how women are shamed for their sexuality, about like the presence of slut shaming, about, you know, how do we change that narrative for women, which is absolutely necessary. And what I see is like, yeah, there's like a similar sort of thing in terms of this damaging narrative that gets given to men that we're not spending very much time challenging as a society and it's this belief. And I think you'd mentioned to me an article that you'd seen on, on exactly this topic. Yeah, there's a 2017 New York Times article by uh, a syndicated columnist by the name of Stephen March. And the title of the article was um, The Unexamined Brutality of the Male Libido. And he pretty much goes on this diatribe of like how we need to acknowledge that male sexuality is inherently predatory and inherently brutal and inherently monstrous. And like, until we acknowledge that we're never going to make any progress with regards to like our sex education and things like that. And it just was for me, epitomizing the assumption or the stereotype of the bias that people have around like male sexuality, that it is this, um, you know, that all, that all men are, are perverted you know, sex crazed deviants, right? Like that's a, a common trope in media as well, right? Like it's, it's perpetuated yeah. by a bunch of other, um, uh, mediums, I suppose. And, uh, you know, he got uh, a lot of it, like it was 2017, it was kind of when the term toxic masculinity really hit center stage in terms of online searches as well. And, um, and, you know, I did a little experiment and I got some of my, um, you know, I put this out there to my followers as well to do the same thing on Instagram. And, uh, if you type into the Google search bar, male sexuality is the the results that you get is male sexuality is predatory male sexuality is um unnecessary male sexuality is like all really negative things that speak to this particular assumption like there's this this um yeah i suppose this like perpetuation of really limiting beliefs around male sexuality and really like harmful beliefs around it as well 
um, that goes into, you know, the ideas of like women being the gatekeepers of sex and men being like the aggressive pursuers of it as well. Like it, it, it ripples out into other assumptions and stereotypes that we have about like dynamics between men and women and, um, and, you know, and like even, even into things like around like masturbation and sexuality, like in terms of like solo sexuality, like it, it, it pedestalizes like predation and aggression and, you know, pursuing sex, but it doesn't say anything about like pleasure and like slowness and sensuality, which is like all things that I see on a day-to-day basis, men are wanting and desiring. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's super harmful bias. And, um, and when we really like start to start to point it out, you'll, you'll see it everywhere. Well, and I mean, the more deeply internalized it becomes, like it can generate so much shame. And what I often say to my clients is that like sexuality is not dangerous. Sexuality, when it's combined together with a lot of shame can be. And rooting that out is part of our collective healing, I believe. And and it's interesting that you bring up solo sex and masturbation because that leads to uh, one of the other big assumptions I see made about male sexuality, which is that like male sexuality, we already talked like it's a simple basic thing that's entirely genitally focused. And like nothing could be further from the truth in, in my experience. And in terms of like the men who come to work with me, what they say they actually want to experience in terms of pleasure, like the desire for a full bodied experience of pleasure is so common as, you know, and I don't know if it's the same with you, but I would imagine a lot of us sexology folks who work with men probably have, and it's often, I don't know if your clients do this, but like sometimes mine are a little bit shy to reveal that this is what they want or they say, well, maybe it's weird or maybe it's, you know, but this is what I want. And it's like, what you're saying is so common. Like, let's just normalize this first, wanting to experience more pleasure and discover like the pleasure potential of your entire body is your birthright as a human being on earth and as a man. But like this is, this trope is in, media right like whenever we see masturbation portrayed in movies it's often like shameful it's played up for laughs like the person doing it looks inept it's almost entirely like eyes on a screen hand on a penis nothing much else going on furatively trying to get it done quick right and when you see these things like repeated at you over and over and over even if like you know in your body, that's not true. Like the more often you see something, the more true it feels, right? Yeah. I see a lot of guys internalize that story that like their whole entire sexuality revolves around their cock. And the, the way that shows up in the work that I do with them is like, I'll say them like, Hey, you know, it's okay to touch the rest of your body, but they, they often go, well, doesn't that mean something about me? Does that mean that I'm weird or not normal or that I'm, you know, if I encourage my clients to explore their anus, for example, like what is that? They make it mean something about their orientation, right? So there's this in- yeah. internalized, um, yeah, this internalized narrative around like, well, this is what male sexuality is and this is what it should look like. And so they self-impose limitations and there's a lot of 
risk, like they, they desire to explore, they, they, be, they, maybe they've heard about it. They listen to me or they listen to you or another, um, sexuality professional talk about full body pleasure. And there's a desire to explore it, but there's a big hurdle there because they've internalized that bias of, well, if I do that, then something's wrong and weird with me because I should be doing it with my penis. And if that's not involved, then like it, it something's wrong with it. And, and, you know, I work with a lot of straight dudes and they're female partners also have those same stories. Um, if it's not involving oh his penis, yep. then, then it's weird or wrong, or it's not, it's not, you know, um, it doesn't count as sex, right? Like that's where a lot of those stories can or come Or if he doesn't get hard, that means something about me. Like, and like, again, can you hear it? Can you hear that voice of shame inside of the things that we're saying? And it's, it's a very sneaky way that shame can sneak in because, because this idea is so normalized, like you might not even recognize that there's a shaming element to it. And when we talk about professionals who either work with men or work with people who partner with men, like if you're going in with this unconscious assumption that that's what your client's sexuality is like, like, can you see how that could create quite a lot of problems for your ability to actually serve that person in front of you as a whole human being? Like, and, and so for a lot of practitioners too, I just want to like reemphasize, like if you're listening to this and feeling a little bit called out, it's not entirely your fault, right? Like what was in your textbooks teaching you about male sexuality? Is this like simple linear thing? Like it's only just now that some of these materials are starting to get revised so, you know, it's like, I don't want to shame or judge anybody. I just want to like point out that, hey, like this might be happening with you and your practice and you might not even be aware of it. Yeah. I was just going to say for all of our like sex research nerds out there, like there are, there are only three research papers that I could find that speak somewhat, but then still not to the full extent of what I would deem comprehensive about prostate orgasms for people with prostates. Like there's this conflation of ejaculation and orgasm and that that's the only uh, experience of, you know, heightened states of pleasure that men can experience. Uh, and, and so someone like Roy Levin, for example, is is one of the only people that's spoken about prostate orgasms at an academic, you know, sex research level. And like that's doing a major disservice to the the hundreds of thousands of men that are on forums every day being like, I have prostate orgasms. These are amazing. These are incredible. They don't involve my penis at all. Like we're so far behind in sex research as well with regards to, you know, male yeah. sexuality and, and the diversity of it. So yeah, this assumption of like man as default, like it winds up doing damage to men as well as, as to, to women and non-binary people. Um, there are a couple of other things that came to mind that we've already touched on, like this idea that men should always be on sexually. We talked about that a little bit before. Um, but like, I also wanted to just bring up before we move on to the third assumption that you got to be careful about if you're going to be going into men's work um, is like, I think it's kind of like two sides to the same coin that on the one hand, because men have structural power, they never feel disempowered, right? That instead there's this assumption of male entitlement, especially where sexuality is concerned, especially where straight sexuality is concerned. Um, but then also this idea that men should always be stoic and that vulnerability is unattractive 
Um, like, cause I think these two are in like, I think these two are related. I don't know if you see what I see there, but this idea that, well, like, you can't feel disempowered. Like it's not possible because you have the structural power, which like, I sometimes hear people say this and like, I wanna like drop my jaw on the floor because a lot of times these folks that I hear like kind of repeating this bias, like are people who know about intersectionality and who really should like know better that just because one of your identities structurally has power doesn't like that's like the whole premise of intersectionality that like we are not simply just men or just women that there's like a variety of identity factors that come together and some of them can leave us feeling disempowered or mean that we're actually structurally oppressed while others can mean that we've got this unearned advantage and that's a whole messy jumble for each individual person. But like the idea that men, because they're men, can't be disempowered is just like, like, do you know human beings? <laughs> Sometimes what I, I want to say. And yet, like, I also don't want to judge and shame because like, I understand where this idea comes from, too. And I think we're like, you know, that's a pattern here that we're repeating, like, we understand where these ideas can come from. And the danger is in never examining them, never challenging them, and just allowing them to drive you beneath the surface. But I'm wondering, would you like to come in on the, these beliefs around empowerment, stoicism, and vulnerability? Yeah, I mean, and this kind of leads into like where we want to go with this third assumption as well, I suppose. But it's a, uh, it's a very common, like, piece of rhetoric that you'll hear a lot of men in these online spaces espouse, right? Like these male influencers who will talk about like being a man is about like suffering and earning your place in the world and like not showing emotion and, you know, be not being weak, right? Not being effeminate. And, and it's like, it speaks, at least in my opinion, to like this very visceral fear that a lot of men have about mm. not being man enough, right? It's one of the reasons why it's very effective rhetoric and why it's like, why it like gets a lot of clicks and a lot of views and a lot of um, engagement is because a lot, of, especially a lot of young men are afraid, afraid of not being man enough, afraid of not being seen as, um, as powerful, as, as strong, right? And, and that, uh, is where it's related, I suppose, to that, um, structural power as well, because a lot of guys don't necessarily feel like they do have, they, they feel disenfranchised, right? They, they feel like they're, they're, yeah. they're not in a position of power or privilege, right? Because and we could wax lyrical about kind of why that is we could talk about the systems at play. Um, but, uh, and so, so a lot of guys will gravitate to like these stories or these, this rhetoric of like, well, here's what you need in order to feel powerful. Here's what you need in order to like really be a man. Here's what you need in order to like not be, you know, weak, uh, which is what a lot of guys are, are firstly already feeling, but then secondly, like afraid of feeling even more. And so, um, so yeah, that's, that's how I kind of see those two assumptions being semi-related, I suppose. Yeah. That's really beautifully articulated. And it's just, like the thing is like 
man enough never arrives. Like this is this is part of the the trap here that like even if you feel like you get there for a moment, right? You're constantly having to re-up, re-up, re-up. It's never this destination where you finally arrive and you can do a sigh of relief and go, okay, I'm there. Now I can be fully human. It's, it's, it's not designed to be humane. Like that's part of the trap of patriarchy for everybody who's caught inside of it is that it wants to impose these things that are, are inhumane and dehumanizing on all of us. And like, think about what that means. Like that is telling men and boys and young men that like, you, you can't be vulnerable, like kindness as weakness about anger being the only appropriate emotion to display. And this is what was talked about in that 2019 set of guidelines from the American Psychological Association, where they basically came right out and said, like, traditional masculinity is psychologically damaging, that in particular, like, teaching men to suppress their emotions causes damage both inward and outward. And like, that's a big statement. Again, like, this is the APA. They're not like, seen broadly as particularly revolutionary or progressive, like they're kind of slow moving. You know, it's kind of like the, you know, the International Committee on Climate Change, those people who are also like really stodgy, who are now putting out their things being like, yeah, this is real bad. Like it's a big <laughs> deal coming from them. Mm. Similarly, like this is a big deal coming from the APA because they don't typically do stuff like that. So like all of this to say, and it's like, it's, it's interesting, right? Like this is another theme that crops up. And I think it's in part because of these often unexamined biases that are carried in many people that these are themes that repeat, right? But I, I think it's a really good moment to start talking about this third assumption, this faulty assumption that we see a lot of practitioners make related to men's engagement with certain communities and influencers online, right? Like this idea that all men who are participating in these online communities, so that could be things like pickup artists, which we mentioned earlier on, or, you know, another one that's really in the, the media zeitgeist at the moment is like incels, or, you know, we've like heard a lot about Andrew Tate lately as well. Like this idea that everybody who's engaging with this, they're like, either basement dwelling neckbeard losers or they're violent misogynists who just hate women and are dangerous. And, and it's sort of, there's so many directions I could go with this. Do you want to start us off so that I don't just like do a total ramble? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love your rambles. So they're always, uh, they're always welcome. Uh, but yeah, the, the, the assumption that I see a lot of people make, and this is like, again, perpetuated by news outlets and by, you know, social media influences and things like that is like, yeah, if you are into pickup artistry, if you're into, you know, uh, even if you're visiting men's rights forums, or if you're like, God forbid, you're an incel, you know, to, you know, to these media outlets, like you are scum really like that. That's how it's often portrayed. And if you're a part of these communities, then you should be, you know, according to them, like rightfully looked down upon. And, um, mm. and I don't think that's the best tact to have when talking about like 
swaths of men who are gravitating towards communities in search of something, right? There's a reason why they're there. I, I spoke to a part of it before. It's because there's a, there's a fear there. There's an insecurity there around what it means to be a man. And a lot of these online groups as you know, detrimental or harmful and as, as misogynistic as they might be, offer something to men. And, you know, part of that is community and, and support and uh, a sharing of people with a similar worldview, which can be uh, affirming, right? And um, part of it's guidance as well, offering like, you know, we might disagree with it. And, and I, I think rightfully so, we might disagree with it. Like, here's what it means to quote unquote, be a man. Here's some instructions for not being weak and, and you know, alleviating some of the fears that a lot of these men have, these insecurities that really hold them back from maybe showing up in the world. Like those, those things, you know, when we strip back the content of it, like are good things. Community is a great thing. Ad advice and guidance from people older than you that maybe have more lived experience than you and, and act as mentors is a good thing. When we start to focus specifically on the content, like that does need to be talked about. We do need to say how damaging and detrimental and harmful it is. But if we can take it a, a, a layer deeper, like why are men gravitating there? What's, what's the, the motivations for them to enter into those spaces? Well, and I think I can tell you, like part of it is because a lot of folks that would like to provide an alternative space are fucking up those first two assumptions, Cam. Like, because what these online communities for men do, they acknowledge men as men and that how their identity as men actually impacts them. So what I sometimes hear, men that have participated in these communities and eventually left, like one of the motivations for joining is like feeling so sick of being gaslit about like that, oh, like, you know, that doesn't warrant specific consideration like we talked about before. And the other thing these communities do is they call out these unexamined biases that a lot of like broadly society and also folks who are saying that like, yes, they're well-meaning and they want to engage men in, in their work, in their communities are carrying around these unexamined biases, right? And that is impacting how they interact with the men who come to them, which can also like, that's a big push away in a way. It can feel like very disorienting in the way that gaslighting can feel very disorienting. And you know, these communities online, when they come straight out and say like, hey, this is how society looks at you. And they say the quiet part out loud. I think for a lot of men that have been struggling with a problem that's so difficult to name because patriarchy wants this problem to be difficult to name, hearing somebody actually say this can feel like the veil is lifting, like suddenly like, oh my God, I feel understood in a way that I haven't before. And then part of the problem is that instead of like doing that and then pointing a pathway towards liberation or a liberatory framework, like they just double down on the patriarchy. And the problem with that is that like, because patriarchy is familiar, because like these ideas about the way you succeed as a man is by becoming like the toughest, the strongest, or the smartest, or basically like winning the game of hierarchy. Like what that does, it, it also feels true because it's familiar. 
right? Like a lot of the frameworks that are taught, like in PUA space, for example, even if like they feel uncomfortable or on some level, they give you a, a tingle like, oh, do I really have to be this way for it to work out? They also feel like they have this truth about them because they connect to tropes that have been repeated at you your whole entire life. And if all these well-meaning people out here like purport to share something different, but they never acknowledge the fact that you are treated differently because you are a man. And here are some of the unexamined biases that a lot of people will be directing at you. It really shouldn't surprise any of us that these online communities have as much draw as they do and are providing something that is speaking to a deep need in a lot of men that is being completely ignored. Yeah, I think it's maybe worth throwing in a couple of examples here of the type of content that vulnerable men and particularly, you know, part of that vulnerability is like age as well. A lot of young men and teenage yep. boys being um, exposed to and, and, and also explicitly targeted by these uh, male influences or, you know, the Andrew Tates of the world or the harmses of the world, you know, so maybe it's worth putting in a couple of clips here just so people can get a bit of a taste for what it is that uh, is being said and maybe why there's a bit of a, a, an allure for these young young boys, young insecure boys. Yeah, let's have a listen. Sex as a, as a man is a weapon you need to use. You have to deny it. You have to give it. You got to give it good. Yep. You got to give it bad. You got to use it right. And when I say there's ways you can fuck her like she doesn't mean anything in a way that she enjoys and ways you can fuck her like she doesn't mean anything in a way she doesn't enjoy, the, the, the G's of the game yeah. know exactly yeah. what I'm Lazy talking about. Thing, bro. And, and, and you yeah. could do that. Yep. Gradually over time, if she ain't acting right, you can change the way you fuck a bitch to make her start to get insecure about he doesn't actually care, he doesn't actually yep. like me. And that will shock him. Yep. So many people will think this is cringe. The reason why I've titled this course like how to fuck like an alpha male is because that specific term of like literally saying the words alpha male to myself changed my life forever. So th these like little fucking anti-male, little soy boy male feminists can say it's all cringe if they want to. It transformed my life thinking and acting like the alpha male. So in my second year of university, going in with that mindset, yeah, I'm, I'm the alpha male, I'm gonna fuck like the alpha male and I'm, I'm probably dominant and everything. My sex life started going fucking crazy. <sighs> it doesn't matter how many times I hear this, like Hamza's just insufferable. I can't stand his rhetoric, <laughs> Cam. Like, but at the same time, like we've talked about this before. And like, so if you've heard this and this is the first time you're hearing influencers like this, it can be a bit like a bit jarring. And like, notice how you're feeling right now. Pay a little bit of attention to that. But um, I don't know, like the thing about Hamza, and if you go look these people up, you know, like, first of all, maybe do it in an incognito browser so you don't totally contaminate your YouTube algorithm. Uh, hashtag ask me how I know. Um, but like, I don't know, Hamza, he feels like one of those people that like we could have like brought over to to our camp if we'd been the one to reach him before the Manosphere did. Like he's he's got a sweetness about himself that's still there somewhere. I don't know. It makes me feel a little bit sad. <laughs> I mean, whenever I listen to, to these guys, I, I always feel a little bit sad in general. Um, but I think it's really important mm -hmm. to acknowledge that like, it doesn't take very long for stuff like this to pop up on social media feeds, whether that be on, I mean, specifically on TikTok and YouTube, those like the major, major platforms yep. for, for this type of content. Um, and so if you 
like, I mean, if you're a man listening to this, you probably are already aware of it. You, like there was a period of time, like maybe last year where I couldn't scroll TikTok more than two videos without seeing an Andrew Tate video. Like it was, it was, he was everywhere. It was everywhere, like the content. Um, and so it's like really important to acknowledge that algorithmic push of content like this and, and it being in front of, like I said before, vulnerable men, men that are young and so teenage boys, but also men that are, um, in other, uh, vulnerable in other ways, like maybe through going through a life transition, perhaps they're, they've just recently had a divorce or a, or a, a yep. pretty bitter breakup. That, that's a very common, um, area of vulnerability that a lot of these guys target, um, because it, it leverages the yep. pain and the hurt, uh, and, and channels it into misogynistic rhetoric. Um, you create like graduation as well, or moving to another city, feeling a little bit isolated and alone, or not really knowing what you're going to be doing with your life. Again, offering community, offering, um, support and offering guidance, not bad things, but when they get leveraged in a way to, to perpetuate, like, like you said, like double down a patriarchy or perpetuate really misogynistic worldviews, like that's when it becomes really problematic. Well, and you know, I, I think really hammering home again, like just the influence of the algorithm here, you know, like maybe actually go to your YouTube, do a single search for Hamza, for example, who's like kind of on the gentler edge of where this all leads to and see how long it takes before you start getting Tate and Jordan Peterson and like a lot of this content. And for for young people who are maybe not aware of how this works, that can also contribute to this sense of this is true because if your bubble is filled with Tate's and Hamza's and Jordan Peterson's who are also feeding you this idea that the mainstream media is like a conspiracy against men. And of course, you know, out there in the matrix, you're not getting the real information, the real information's here. And if in that bubble, like that just gets repeated to you over and over, like this is one of the, you know, the vulnerabilities inherent in human cognition, the more familiar something is, the more true it feels and the safer it feels, right? So like recognizing that that's present and just, yeah, like just go do it, see what it does to your YouTube. I, I, <laughs> I say that because in preparing for our SAR and working on gathering media for our SAR, like I made the mistake of not doing this in an incognito browser and my YouTube algorithm still hasn't recovered. Plus I think it's really confused because it keeps giving me like really hardcore left-wing content together <laughs> with like Jordan Peterson and Andrew Tate clips. And I'm like, well, how are you going to advertise to me now, Google? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Get in the full spectrum. Um, and I, what I want to, what I want to do to like really bring this to, to a, to a point is like address the dismissiveness, right? Like that's what I think is, um, is often this, like the assumption here is that, oh, we can just dismiss these guys, these, you know, you said before, like basement dwelling kind of neck beard loser type guys. We just like dismiss them and their fucking alpha bro influences, right? Is there, there's a bit of a hand waving that goes on. And I noticed this yeah. in real time when I was actually getting my hair cut at my local hairdresser, uh, in Noosa. And there was a, a teenage boy. I know he was a, a teenage boy cause he was still in his uh, school uniform and he was there with his mum getting his hair cut. Um, uh, I, I believe it was the last day of school. So he was getting his hair cut for the holidays and they were having a chat about, uh, the content that he watches online. And, and the, the boy was telling his mum about Andrew Tate 
about how, you know, I guess like how he agreed with a lot of what Andrew Tate was saying. And the, the mother, uh, in, you know, very, um, like, I, I suppose stereotypical fashion was just like, he's a fucking idiot. Like, don't listen to anything he says. Like, you he, can't believe you're listening. To, what a, what a dumb thing to do. Like, just like really laying on how much she disregarded Andrew Tate's opinions completely and how much she thought she was an idiot and how much she thought her son was stupid for listening to him essentially. And the only thing I could think of in that moment was that's going to drive your son to watch more Andrew Tate, right? The, the fact that you're yep. like, and, and not to hang shit on, on that mother by any means, cause this is what we all kind of do, right? Is dismiss guys that talk like this. Right. And, uh, and the men that, that follow them because of this, this assumption that they are, you know, just losers and idiots. Uh, and so what that does is it pushes these guys deeper into this online community or, or down that algorithm to, to, to feel more validated because they feel like they've just been gaslit by, by someone. They feel like they've just been under acknowledged or, or, um, you know, not affirmed by someone in their life who probably they thought would really affirm them and would ask them questions about like, oh, why do you feel that way? What is it about? Like really, a really valuable question to ask your, your teenage boy, for example, is like, what is it that Andrew Tate is saying that you agree with? Like, what is it and yes. why, why do you agree with that? And rather than just dismissing it out of hand, cause that opens up a conversation to really check in with like what fears and insecurities are being spoken to by these guys. Well, and more than that, because that conversation with her son also risks really validating what Tate and others like him say that she's just part of the matrix because the thing that her son could have been resonating with, which is like, and most influencers like this, most grifters do the same sort of thing where not everything they say is heinous bullshit. They say some stuff that's just like really basic self-help advice that like nobody is going to argue with. Right. So it might be something like, you know, you've got to like focus and put in consistent effort if you want to see results. Like that's something that Andrew Tate talks about in the realm of business and sport. And like, you know, sometimes he'll do it with much more like kind of pushy language, like with a fucking big you know, cigarette don't be or a, a big a cigar in his mouth, you know? Exactly. But like that basic idea that, okay, you have to put in consistent effort to get the results you want. Like if, if that's one of the things that's resonating with you the most, if he's not too far into the Tate hole yet, but then his mom is just like, well, that guy's a stupid idiot. Don't listen to anything he says. Like, it's like, well, that's clearly wrong. Like you're clearly lying because that is clearly right. And like, so it can do, it, it pushes away because it's like, you're not being listened to, but it's more than that. Like it can also reinforce this message that a lot of these people put out that there's a conspiracy in the wider world against men that like, you know, even though your mom loves you, she's been infected by the feminazis and, you know, like you can't trust everything that she says, you know, and like this just pulls people deeper and deeper in. Whereas that question, you know, what is it? that he says that that really resonates with you getting curious in that way can have a totally different effect, especially because they say that that's not going to happen. Right. Like they paint this picture that you can't have conversations with people outside of 
those communities. So when you make the space for those conversations to actually happen, that is a thing that like can cause people to pause and go, wait a minute. Maybe this isn't exactly as I've been told. Yeah. And that, and that's tough to do. Like I acknowledge that that is a tough thing to do, especially if they're saying some heinous shit that you don't agree with. Um, so keeping that compassion and curiosity piece can be, can be tough to do, but like to, to kind of sum this up, I suppose the, the thing here that I, I want to share is like, rather than seeing these men as violent losers, essentially, like, can you see them as vulnerable, hurting people who are looking for sources of community and looking for sources of support? Can you shift your frame of reference for how you view these men? Um, and that's the, that's the assumption there is that they're, they're, they're not these guys. They're actually these guys instead. Yeah. And, and who are essentially searching for connection and are more than likely going to be open to other routes of connection, provided that there's connection to be had there. So yeah, I think that's a good place to wrap up with the, the three assumptions that you need to not be making if you're going to be working with men or people who partner with men. Uh, so I, I put out on Instagram yesterday a just a, a prompt to have people ask questions of us with regards to doing work with men and having male clients and what we can do to better serve them. And a question that came through was how to work with men who recognize what needs to be done. That is that they develop, you know, they need to develop their communication skills, but they just choose not to do it. And I was curious if you had any thoughts around like how to better serve those types of men. So, I mean, typically by the time they show up with someone like you or me or this potential questioner, like they are aware that they want to change something in their life. And, you know, they've also chosen to come and work with a, a coach. So like generally that means that they are ready to do something. Uh, I think though where a lot of practitioners really miss a beat is like things can get super theoretical sometimes where what I find a lot of my men clients want is like really practical step-by-step -step guidance. So when they say, how do I do something? I actually answer the question, how you do it. And um, I think it's worth pointing out as well, like a pretty significant portion of my clientele are neurodivergent people. I work with a lot of people who um, are autistic people. And like this question is even more amplified for folks who aren't neurotypical because the way like social learning and social awareness works in their brains is different. So a lot of it like has to actually be learned as a how-to step-by-step. Whereas like a lot of times neurotypical people just be like, well, just be yourself. It's like, how the fuck is that helpful to anyone? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really not. So, you know, and this is one thing that I've said about pickup artists for as long as I've been um, engaged in that world and doing research about that world is like those guys, whatever shade you want to throw at them, like when people say, how do I do this? They answer that and they answer it with real practical step-by-step -step, implementable, like things explained to a degree that people sometimes ridicule. But like, honestly, when you're trying to help folks who have like real challenges around social skills, you don't help them by like ridiculing that skills deficit. You help them by 
guiding them step-by-step with real practical applications where they can see things start to change in their world. That's the other thing. Like I always talk to my clients about how our work is going to have some short-term quick results and then also longer-term results that we're going to need to like spend a decent amount of time getting to. But like, if you are not prepared to give your clients a quick win, like you will lose men much faster than you will lose women if you aren't delivering quick wins. I don't know if that's reflected in your practice as well, Cam, but like those are the two things that immediately come to mind for me. Yeah, that definitely resonates. And I like what you said then about the longer term goals. Because yeah, when I read that question, the things the things that come up for me, I suppose, are around motivation. So if he if he knows what he needs yeah. to do, but he's not doing those things, then yeah, for the most part, especially in the coaching space, that's an issue of motivation for me. Maybe he's not feeling as intrinsically motivated to do the things that he should be doing, that he knows that he should be doing because maybe together as a practitioner client kind of relationship or dynamic, we haven't gotten super clear on what the outcome will be for him if he does these particular practices or if he does this particular development of skill sets. Um, so doing some stronger goal setting comes to mind around that, like really painting a clear embodied vision about it. So I really like to take goals you know, out of the conceptualized kind of intellectualized space of like, okay, cool, that's what I want to achieve. And that's the the kind of direction I want to head into. Like, how does that feel in your body? When you envision yourself being mm. in that space where you've like reached your goal, what do you notice in your body? What comes up? And we do like a bit of a envisioning practice around, um, yeah, around like painting that picture and then noticing how it feels when you're in that space. Uh, to really anchor in that motivation. And and when he does struggle he, or he has resistance, because all your clients will, right? And and especially guys, they'll they'll find things to 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 resist. Um like I'll, I'll do a practice with them. I'll be like, all right, let's let's check back in with that that um motivation. Let's check back in with that core value. Right. That's what I'll I'll frame it as. It's like a core value practice. And um Yep. And and if they're feeling a bit disconnected from it, that's probably you know, that's usually an indication that they're, they're going to throw up some resistance to doing some practices. So if I can get them to dial back in and be like, oh, cool, this is my why, this is the reason why I'm doing it. This is the direction that I'm heading in. Then um, they're much more inclined to do the practices because they align with their values. They align with the direction that they, they want to head in, uh, in, in their coaching. There's a really beautiful uh, saying that comes to mind. Um, not a saying of that sounds like it's like this ancient proverb. But it was like a quote from Russell, <laughs> Russell Brand did this interview with, um, with, I don't know, some, some British journalist. And, uh, he talks about uh, like aligning yourself with like that, that feeling of, um, that feel, uh, like, I think he says like that feeling of like pleasure and aliveness and joy and like, and, and just like living in alignment with your values will make you beam like the sun. And I really love that, that turn of phrase because, mm. because like, you see your clients being like the sun when they're like, yeah, I'm doing the things. This is the reason why I'm doing it. Like I'm getting, you know, I'm, I'm, do, I'm doing the things like I'm, I'm achieving the things I want to achieve. Like that pe- people just blossom and glow. Right. And they, they, uh, as Russell Brand says, being like the sun. So I really try and instill that into my clients, that, that intrinsic motivation piece with their goals. Such a beautiful way to put it. And it's reminded me of one more thing, which can I, can I sneak one yes, more thing? Yes, sneak it in. In? Beautiful. Um, 
just when you were talking about motivation, it immediately made me think of my clients who have RSD, so rejection sensitive dysphoria, which is super common in people who have ADHD, um, because that can be a thing that blocks motivation because like experiences of rejection or criticism are, are more like, like basically it sets off the same region in the brain that physical pain does. So when these folks say it's really, really painful, like they literally mean it, like as if you're, you know, slamming your funny bone into like the hard corner of a table, right? Like painful in that kind of way. And what I've found oftentimes helps in addition to some of the things we've already talked about here is also like, make it fun, make it playful. And like with the rejection, like I often do a bit of gamification of that. We go play, you know, 20 no's or 50 no's or a hundred no's. Um, and it's interesting how well that can work, especially when people are like, this is going to be work. This is going to be hard. If you reintroduce and help people reconnect to fun and play and that playful spirit we all turned up on earth with initially, like that also helps a lot. <laughs> yep. Definitely. I love the gamification of, um, yeah, these, these, these coaching processes. Uh, thank you for sharing uh, and speaking into that that question, Sarah. There's one final thing on my agenda for today's podcast episode, which is to talk about our upcoming SAR, right? Which is in July, the last weekend of July. Um, and it's specifically on US time zone, US and Europe-ish time zones. And uh, essentially the conversation that we've had today is a, a taster of the, the direction that we go with this size. Like it's a really a deep dive and a nuanced unpacking of the assumptions that we make about men and particularly about the men in these online communities as well. And how to, how to reach them. You, you mentioned about harms are like, if we'd gone to him first and you know, we, we brought him over to, you know, the, the good side of the force, let's say. Like how, how much positive impact like he would be able to have. And I, I think that about like these, these clients and these men that we are, are reaching, like they can become really beautiful role models in their communities and for the other men in their life, um, if we reach them, right. And, and that's kind of what the SAR is about is like how to reach these men and how to better understand them and how to better connect with them. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's so beautifully put because like when folks go through these transformations, it doesn't just stop with them, right? It ripples out in a huge way. And, you know, this SAR, which is coming up on July 29th and 30th, 2023, is currently open for enrollment. You can go to themansar.com if you would like to book a place. And one thing I'll mention is if you've been listening to this and you're like, well, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a sex coach, you know, but like I'm a, a mom of a teenager, or I work with a lot of teenage boys, you know, I'm a high school teacher. This could also be for you. Like if you've really resonated with this episode, that's a pretty good litmus test about whether or not SAR would be a fit for you. Or if you've also listened to this and thought like, wow, like how could I bring this to my organization? I heard you all mention that you do corporate trainings as well. Please reach out to us. And if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, it's it's already August, 2023, <laughs> like then just go back to the Mansar. We have additional dates coming up. So kind of whenever you're listening to this, there should be a Mansar on the horizon. 
Um, and if you're unsure about whether the Mansar is for you, like reach out. Um, we can include the, I think it's hello at the mansar.com as a way you can contact us and would be more than happy to answer your questions or help you figure out like, would this be uh, a worthwhile use of a weekend of your time to come and, and dive deep, right? Because it helps you to hold space for men in kind of whatever capacity you would do that by creating that space within yourself. So again, it's a sensitivity training. It is a bit uncomfortable, right? Because we do shake up those unconscious biases. But the power in that is that once you make them conscious, you can actually look at them and decide, is this what I want to believe? Is this what I want to value? Is this how I want to be in my relationships with men of all sorts? And it gives you the power to choose, right? Instead of just being driven by what you've been handed by society and culture and your parents and your school and media, that instead, like, it puts you in in the driver's seat there. And that's incredibly powerful. Like that's, that's the magic of SAR. I'm not sure if there's anything, uh, anything more I'd add there. I'm just curious what your, your closing yeah, thoughts are vis-a-vis -vis SAR. Well, my closing thoughts are that we could wax lyrical about it, but it might be worthwhile throwing up a beautiful testimonial from one of our previous participants. His name is Charles Dubois. He has been on my podcast before, so you might recognize that name. It is a very catchy name. Uh, so here's something that Charles had to say about one of the SARS that he participated in. Hey, I wanted to take a moment to share with you my experience having just completed a sexual attitudes reassessment seminar, also known as a SAR. This one was focused exclusively on men. Having gone through one, I honestly think every person who works in the sexuality profession in some capacity that works directly with people um, or even those that don't you know even those that put on seminars or lectures or even do strictly online content should absolutely participate in one at some point um, it was a mind-blowing experience to say the least um, a mind-blowing and heart-opening experience honestly you know we really created a very tight container, one that had a lot of safety, one that allowed for a lot of vulnerability. This was an opportunity to dive really deep um, and create that space to really kind of open up um, and both kind of see into each other and see into the world and see into ourselves, you know? So I, so yeah, um, so again, an opportunity to examine our own biases. So what do I mean like that? Well, let me just share with you some of the topics that we discussed, that we discussed. A number of sessions were focused on the manosphere, which is a term coined to try to encapsulate a lot of disparate groups, such as pickup artists, men's right activists, men going their own way, incels, and so many others. These are highly online subcultures that our society often mocks and dismisses, but don't let that fool you. They are highly organized and highly skilled at identifying and using men's insecurities, negative experiences with women and grievances to red pill men into cultures that hate women to some extent or another um, and blame them for their problems. So this was not just an opportunity to learn about these things, but also to examine 
the reactions that we have within ourselves um, so that we can not let those biases and those judgments and those reactions get in the way of working with men and the broad range of sexual and emotional issues that they may have. I'm trying to think of comparative experiences. Um, you know, I call them sort of the profound experiences we have, the, the times where we step out of our life for a day or a weekend or even a week, go to a retreat, go to a, a training, participate in a plant medicine ceremony, whatever it is that you do, you have those great reorganizations of thoughts and emotions inside that are so overwhelming it takes days after work to process and integrate them in your life like this really was one of those um, it's an incredible amount of vulnerability honesty and self-reflection and I'm just absolutely blessed to have been a part of that so thank you Cam thank you fellow classmates and have a great day Oh, what a lovely He's man. So great, I know. I love him so much. And um, I'm excited to uh, to see uh, how he really develops as a coach for men as well, because um, he's got a beautiful, um, a beautiful presence about him. Uh, so that's, that's it for this episode, really. Um, I am super grateful, Sarah, for you coming on and speaking with me and, um, and, and on behalf of your own, uh, you know, approach and opinions about the SAR and, and, um, and like men and masculinities in general, I resonate with pretty much everything that you said, 110%. So, uh, it was, um, it was nice to just kind of like, you know, uh, nerd out with you again, but yeah, sincerely recommend everyone that is interested in this training. It's something you want to keep on offering. So the mansar.com is the place to go. Um, yeah, just really humbled and really grateful to Sarah that you and I could do something like this. Cause I, I, I do believe in it and I am really passionate about it and I'm grateful that there's someone else out there that shares that with me. Likewise, Cam, this is always such a pleasure and yeah, I'm really excited about what we've created and I want to now like get it to all the people so that we can change the world for the better. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. All right, Sarah. Well, I'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Cam. Bye.